0: the only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash ETM and enter code ETM at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E.com slash ETM. Go to joindeleteme.com slash ETM and use code ETM for 20% off.
1: So I think index funds is arguably the greatest invention of the financial industry of the past half century. Uh, This is a really cheap, simple product that has saved millions of Americans hundreds of billions of dollars just directly. And indirectly, we're probably talking in the trillions. And that's why the only financial advice I ever feel comfortable giving to people is being a little bit lazy and choosing a handful of cheap, boring Low cost, well diversified index funds, and forgetting about it until the day they retire.
2: You're listening to Millennial Money with award winning money expert and serial entrepreneur, Shauna Come to Game, where we flip the script on the old school approach to everything your parents never taught you about money. Each week, Shauna creates a safe space by talking with special guests from around the world about money wellness, entrepreneurship, traveling like a boss, and what makes millennials tick. Unique stories, trailblazing perspectives, tips, tricks, and everything there is to know about money. Find it all here as you uncover your money story and unlock the life you want to live. Pretty cool, right? Here's Shauna, money expert, Indiana Hoosier, and burger aficionado.
0: Welcome back to the show, my friend. I'm so excited to have you here for this I'm going to use the word exciting twice for this very exciting episode. Before we jump in, I do have a favor to ask. If you could click the link in the show notes to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. This is one of the best, best ways to continue to grow the show. And in that review for December, I want you to tell us the craziest thing that you've done to save money during the holiday season. I'm going to be hand-selecting a few of their reviews to share throughout the month, I'm going to be sending you a little special surprise as a thank you. So head on over to the link and leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Okay, I want you to imagine this. A bunch of really smart people sitting around a table and deciding to invent a financial product that would democratize investing and save investors like you and me billions of dollars in fees. And thus, the index fund was invented probably the most popular way that most of us invest today. Where our guest, Robin Wigglesworth, has written this phenomenal, very insightful book called Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. Whether you're a newbie to index funds or a seasoned pro, Robin's going to share with you the incredible power of index funds, what the heck they even are and why he believes being a little bit lazy is the key to building wealth and financial success. You can sign me up for that for sure. I'm Shauna Compton-Game, this is Millennial Money, and I am over the moon to bring you this insightful and educational conversation. Here we go. Robin, I am so, so excited to have you on a podcast. This is going to be such an amazing conversation, so thank you so much for being here all the way from Norway.
1: Yes. No, thanks for having me on. I mean, it's dark and wet here, so it's nice to have something like this to look forward to.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that season, right? And I know in Norway, it's even, it's even worse than where I am <laughs> here in the US. You, you get many months of dark and wet, don't you?
1: Yes. I, I can deal with cold weather, the snow. I quite like winter. It's the four months of, of almost perfect darkness that really does get you down. So uh, we just need to plow our way through it. But at least maybe, hopefully, we'll have a white Christmas to look forward to.
0: That is definitely something to look forward to. Well, we are going to have so much fun talking about your new book out. It's called Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. Now, I sat down to read your book yesterday. And wow, I mean, what an incredible story. So to start... I'd just love to know, what got you intrigued to even write this book and tell this story?
1: Well, so I used to live in New York, so I haven't always been sort of exiled to the cold fridge in Norway. Uh, And I was covering Wall Street for the Financial Times newspaper where I work at. And, you know, you have to be a little bit strategic about what you cover. So I wanted to do the big stuff, not the stock markets go up, stock markets go down, but the really big trends that were really affecting everything. one of the biggest trends is the rise of of index funds, passive investing, as it's sometimes almost pejoratively called. So I was covering this because it it was, in many respects, almost on the QT, rewiring financial markets in front of my eyes and and rippling through the entire investment industry and forcing big investment banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley to change how they did business. Uh, So I was covering this and I started digging into the history and you know, as a journalist, you sometimes have important stories that sadly aren't actually that interesting, or you have really interesting <laughs> stories that just aren't that actually that important. but sometimes once in a blue moon, you have a story that is both absolutely vital but also really fun and interesting. And the more I dug into the history of the people that invented index funds, the more I was kind of taken with this almost classic story of these kind of renegades inventing something really profoundly disruptive that was hated by their own industries and figuratively spat upon until finally they won and essentially kind of took over the world. So, yeah, that's the the book I tried to write. And uh, it was a lot of fun doing it.
0: Yeah, I, I can't imagine. I mean... It's, it's such an interesting story with a lot of plot twists. And I think w- what's really interesting is you talk about how Wall Street really did not want this index fund revolution to come on because this did really democratize investing and ultimately saved a lot of people a lot of money in fees that would have otherwise gone to Wall Street for someone listening, though, who maybe you know is new to, to Wall Street and how things work, walk me through a little bit about like, what was the investing world like before this index fund kind of evolution?
1: Well, so it was just a radically different world, right? Obviously, it's the pre-internet days. But broadly speaking, when financial markets were first invented – you know, it was individual, wealthy people that maybe invested through a stockbroker in the city of London or, or you know, on, on Wall Street. And it was physically a market outside on the street then. And then over time, this became more professional and people pooled money into collective investment funds. So there'd be investment trusts and, and the first mutual funds started emerging in the US 100 years ago. And for most of you know, the subsequent century, it's all been about mutual funds. There have been other things invented like hedge funds and private equity, but mutual funds is, you know, there are $40 trillion globally in mutual funds. It's a phenomenal invention. Wow. But, you know, I don't want to be too mean to against people that work in finance because most of the people there are incredibly upright, hardworking, smart, brilliant men and women. Um, But I don't think I'm speaking out of turn by saying that most industries are keen on stuff that ensures they get paid well rather than how you get paid well. Right. Most electricians. Yeah, exactly. Most electricians don't want to charge you the lowest possible price. Right. Um, so investment funds were always quite expensive uh, at the same time in the 50s and 60s, especially and by the 70s. This was well known in academia. People realized that the, even the professional fund managers actually did a really bad job. Now, some of this is just the simple maths that for everybody who buys or sells a stock, somebody's on the other side of that trade. And over an entire year, you know, everybody who has done worse than the market, somebody has to do better and vice versa. So if you're paying these people a lot of money, on average, the average investor is going to make do less than the market. But people still kind of thought that, well, I can pick the best fund managers, the smartest people, the people that can do really well over a 10-year, 20-year period. But in reality, as the computer era dawned and people for the first time had concrete actual data written on like magnetic spools back then, they could see that the average fund manager didn't just do a little bit worse than the market, they did way worse than the market. Over a 10 year wow. period, the vast majority of professional fund managers who remember, you know, are smart, hardworking people cannot beat the market. So that was the impetus be- between some heretics thinking that, well, if we can't beat the market, how about we just join the market and create a fund that literally does nothing but track an entire index, stock market index, like the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the FTSE as cheaply as humanly possible. And that's what they did.
0: It's incredible. Yeah. I I want to dive a bit into this, this motley crew of, of nerds, <laughs> mm. really smart people who, who got together and kind of came up with, with this idea. Tell me a little bit about who they are and how, how this idea really originated for them.
1: Well, I think the idea is originated in academia. I mean, it's quite often to dismiss, you know, what academics do is sort of ivory tower pontificating but I really think there were just a handful of economists. You know, almost all of them went on to win Nobel prizes uh, for their work on on things like this. That first, you know, mathematically showed, uh, you know, that the stock market was actually a pretty good bet in the, as a whole that you could buy the market portfolio, as a guy called Bill Sharp said, and that would probably be the optimal trade-off between the risk of your investments and the return of your investments. And then somebody like Gene Farmer. Also came out with a fully fledged theory for why this was. Why were active managers, professional managers, doing such a miserable job on average? And he called it the efficient markets theory. That you know, over time, you know, the market constantly bakes in all new, relevant, and sometimes, frankly, irrelevant information all the time. So the market might be wrong from time to time, but it's almost impossible to know ahead of time why that is. Um, so those were the academics. that inspired like the first batch of pioneers, and there were essentially you know three men because it was all men in finance back in those days working at second, third tier financial institutions far away from Wall Street. And I don't think that was a coincidence that they weren't working at some pedigreed big institutions at the time. So I think most institutions hate disrupting themselves, right?
0: <laughs> right.
1: Well, I mean, they um, they were essentially, yeah, they're the renegades, the motley crew that I talk a lot about. But there was a guy called John Mac McCrown, a former farmhand from Illinois, first guy in his family to go to college. He worked at Wells Fargo when Wells Fargo was a, a tiny regional bank in San, uh, San Francisco. There was a guy called uh, Rex Sinkfield at American National Bank of Chicago. It wasn't even the biggest bank in Chicago at the time. And uh, a, a kind of a zany, gregarious, outgoing Guy called Dean LeBaron, who worked at a, a startup in that he started in, outside Boston called Battery March, and I think they were the people that had some the mix of both the brains, but quite, quite possibly also the contrarian streak needed to do something that was, at best, seen as lazy by everybody else in the industry, and it were something that would you know ruin everybody's jobs, right?
0: Right. <laughs> It's it sounds like uh, I mean, it's just it's crazy to think about how really smart people got together and just decided, you know, we're just going to we're just going to change things and how it hadn't been changed prior, I think, is just a really interesting story. And then you write like the growth of mutual funds, uh, I believe somewhere around 16 trillion, I think, by the end of 2020, the growth just such a fast growth. Like, why do you think index funds grew so fast? Is it just because finally individual investors were able to invest in something that you know ultimately saved them time and money?
1: Yeah, I mean it's the convenience and the the cost. So I mean it took a long time. This was the first index fund, the very 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 first index fund, uh, sprung out uh, in 1971. It managed the money for Samsonite pensions, Samsonite's pension plan. And there were lots of pension plans that adopted this because they could, they could see the numbers, the data. Um, but for ordinary investors, this took a long time. This took decades to sink in. And it took people like Jack Bogle and Vanguard, the company he founded, to really sort of hammer this point home that, you know, even if you believe that there are active managers that can sustainably beat the market, usually they're so expensive that the vast majority of people are better off in index funds. And it's really only in the last 20 years this has taken off completely. So I think it took something like 30 years for the first trillion dollars in index funds. And since then, yes, we're now at $17 trillion. in. So those are index mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, which is sort of a index fund 2.0 that trade on a stock exchange just like any share, really. Um, and it's just so Titanically big, right? It's bigger, growing faster than pretty much any other corner of the financial industry. And I think the reason why some people, you know, are paying more attention to this, why I'm paying more attention to it, is that, you know, if this growth rate continues, they're kind of going to gobble up big chunks of the entire US or global stock market and, you know, have a lot of power eventually.
0: Yeah. And then and then what what can we do with that power?
1: Well, we can as investors do quite a lot. I mean, the benefits of indexing are just enormous. I mean, I've seen one study that just looked at American investors in very traditional equity funds and calculated that over the past 25 years, they've saved directly $350 billion plus in fees over those 25 years. Oh, that's oh, money that's going to go straight into our pocket. But even that understates... How much money we've all saved because index funds is a cheap competitor, cheap, simple competitor to traditional active mutual funds or hedge funds and so on. So it's beaten down fees across the entire investment industry. So hedge fund fees, mutual fund fees, lots of other fees have fallen by around a third over the past 20, 30 years. So I I did some very, very rough back of the envelope calculations, but we are talking. Trillions of dollars saved by savers around the world. That is more money to, for our retirement, for our kids' college fund, and so on. Thanks to the index fund. Even if you haven't invested in them, you've won out from this. But the, the issue is that they're so now so big. There's only really sort of a handful of index fund companies, primarily Black or BlackRock and Vanguard, that you know control this entire market. um Because the bigger you are, the cheaper you can sell these funds, and the more money goes into those funds, and the more the bigger the companies become. But at some point, you know, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, another of those big three, as people call them, they control on average almost 25% of the vote in every major US company. And, you know, this is a time where we're all kind of feeling a little bit nervous about, let's say, social media companies and technology companies having so much concentrated power. And the investment industry is far more sort of splintered still. But I think we're right to maybe start thinking at least about whether we feel comfortable with so much corporate power kind of resting through these index funds at these just a handful of investment firms, really.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you when you put it that way and you look at only a few firms holding that much power, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's it's start it starts to get a little worrisome. <laughs> you know, we obviously have been through some weird things the last few years globally yes. that we just, you know, didn't obviously didn't anticipate, didn't think we would go through. What do you think for for my listeners, people who are listening to this this episode right now, what are some takeaways about about this this revolution in creating you know, creating the index funds, really democratizing investing. Like, are there any great takeaways for people on an individual level for them investing?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I have to admit, I hate the term democratizing anything because, you know, frankly, I always have connotations to Iraq and we know how democratizing Iraq went, right? But I do think like investing index funds is, it is the best term for it index funds have genuinely democratized investing for a lot of people and you know i'm a financial journalist and i talk to some brilliant people all the time who dedicated their lives to trying to beat the market and even they struggle so i will say that the more i learn about finance the more i realize how little i know and the only financial advice i ever feel comfortable giving to any friend or family that comes and asks is you know index funds it's it's just a cheap Easy, fairly conservative way of investing your money, and you can sleep at night. And I, I like sleeping soundly. So, <laughs> despite me kind of in my book, I do explore some of the downsides, some of the real, some potential, and some I think are a little bit bogus and offered up by the investment industry as of scaremongering tactics. I still think that even big fans like me should be aware of the potential downsides. I still think that this is, you know. There, there aren't that many pos- positive inventions that have come out of Wall Street over the past half century, right? And this is unambiguously one of them. I mean, a cheap, simple product in an industry that thrives on complexity and cost, that's pretty wonderful. So I think people should be aware of what goes into an index fund because, frankly, they can all be very different. There's a world of difference between buying let's say, a Vanguard 500 index fund that you know, costs you 0.04%, and a outrageously complex, triple-leveraged, options-based ETF sold to you by a financial advisor who's stuffing his own pockets on the fees from that sale, uh, that is quite liable to blow up in your face. I mean, there are many, many examples that I can give of, frankly, stupidly structured index funds that should never be seen the light of day, let alone touch the portfolio of an ordinary investor. Uh, But broadly speaking, this is an actual revolution that we can celebrate uh, pretty much unambiguously.
0: The weather is getting warmer. I'm so excited. And it is time to say goodbye to all those jackets and sweaters and hello to the shorts and t-shirts. I honestly would use Ernan in lots of different ways, but what's on my mind recently is I need a night out. I need some good tacos to sip on a few virgin margaritas Talking money under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings daily max, pay period max, and location. See Earning.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. I'm sorry, but I have the best dog ever. Her name is Winnie Stardust. She is a mini golden mountain doodle full of life, and I would do just about anything to keep her happy, healthy, and safe. Today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Your pet is part of your family and you want to do the best for them, but vet bills can really add up. We jokingly keep telling Winnie she needs to get a job to pay for her vet bill. That's why you should check out pet insurance. And with ASPCA Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customized accident and illness plans making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping to ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are. Because vet bills can really add up, especially when you are least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit aspca slash ETM. That's aspca slash ETM. Again, that's aspca slash ETM. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independent American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer, is not engaged in the business of insurance. So how do we, I mean, obviously we can't give investment advice, but how do we as the everyday investor then sort our way through these index funds to figure out which ones are are solid, are good investments, and which ones are maybe the not so good ones?
1: Well, exactly how much you invest in what, like you say, we are not. Well, I'm not a financial advisor, so you know it depends on like how many years you have till retirement and health issues. It's all very idiosyncratic. I have to admit, the U.S. tax system, despite living there for four years, was a mystery beyond the cosmos for me. <laughs> I have an easier time with nuclear physics than I do with the U.S. tax code. So stuff like that, you need advice for, but fundamentally, you know, investing, as Jack Bogle said, is one of those rare uh, areas of life where you get what you don't pay for. You actually do better by being cheap and lazy. And by being cheap, I mean, buying the cheapest funds you can, broadly speaking, almost always do better. Even the cheaper, actively managed traditional mutual funds do better than the expensive ones in the long run. And being lazy by just not overthinking things. Go, don't go punting money on GameStop or AMC or crypto, but just finding a a handful of broad, boring, well diversified index funds sold by people like Vanguard, and putting a bit of money into them every year, and then periodically rebalancing towards bonds as you get older. It, it's kind of it's the the advice that most financial advisors give, or at least good ones, the ones I've spoken to give that actually, you know don't try any hail mary stuff right with your, your personal savings because you can get yourself into a pretty deep hole that is hard to dig out of especially if you're younger you know saving a little bit of money in a stock market index fund can make an enormous amount of difference by the time you're kind of in your 60s and 70s thanks to the magic of compounding returns but if you choose an expensive fund well then you get hit by the the nightmare of compounding costs if you're paying 1% a year to a professional fund manager, that that adds up a lot by the time you're 60, 70. And I can guarantee you that statistically all the data shows that you will do way worse, way worse than somebody who just chose a boring, plain vanilla, lazy index fund.
0: And you make a really good point about especially the last couple of years. Obviously, there's been a lot of interest in meme stocks and things that feel potentially a little bit sexier. Obviously, technology has come along and we can now invest very easily from our phones, just a push of a button. Where do you think the future of this goes? I mean, obviously, index funds, a lot of them are so cheap, they can't really get any cheaper. Like, Where do you think the, the future kind of goes from here?
1: Well, I actually think. I mean, first of all, index funds can get cheaper. I mean, most of the the boring, simple ones cost, you know, a fraction of a percentage point now. But you know, there are some people that have started experimenting with free index funds, and it's a bit like some shops will sell you essentially like beer or or, or diapers at cost to get you in through the door, and try and sell you on some heavily mm-hmm. marked right. up potato crisps or, or something. Uh, so if you can be disciplined you can go to some of these places get a free index fund or nearly free index fund and i think actually it's all going to be free in, the, in 10 years time because it's so simple these days um but yes the retail trading phenomenon is absolutely astonishing and amazing and you know i i have seen one before in my lifetime the dot-com uh crisis so i was you know a lot younger then um but it seems very familiar it's very similar to what we've seen many times before in some respects, but like you say, the radical change is free or nearly free trading commissions. Now, even in the '90s, people still had to pay up you know eight dollars per trade and also you can do it on your mobile phone. you can be on the bus, on the way to school and do this and you know back in the day, you had dial-up modem. And for the people who haven't listened I to I that, remember
0: that. I know it's
1: awful, right? <laughs> yes. It's terrible. I mean, just the sound of it still makes me, you know, <laughs> grind my Cringe. teeth. Yeah. So I I I have marked my I'm nailed my flag to the mask. I think this is dangerous. And fortunately I think you know, a lot of people lost a lot of money already. And the data is also unambiguous that eventually ordinary investors are what Wall Street for a very good reason called the dumb money. One of the reasons why it's become harder to be a professional money manager in over the past 10, 20, 30 years is because there's less dumb money, as in there are less ordinary people punting the stock market and getting their faces ripped off by the professionals. So I hope this boom dies down and does it soon. Unfortunately, history shows that only happens when we have a massive market setback uh, and people's, you know, Lives can be ruined by something like that. And I do think that we're actually in a completely new environment thanks to free trading and gamified apps on mobile phones and Swift dial up, you know, no Swift Wi-Fi. So I think we are probably facing an environment that things will fall back at some point, whether it's next week, next year, or in five, ten years' time, but it won't fall back to the levels that we've seen in previous lows. There's going to be a higher natural level of of retail trading, I think, and also it's kind of, it's human, right? It's more fun. Nobody goes to a party and brags to people about how they bought a Vanguard 500 fund. That's not cool. <laughs> you're not the cool person at the party. Then you want to talk about how you kind of you you're an ape on on Reddit and you're buying AMC and Blackberry and GameStop, right? That's way more fun. Even though you kind of you probably know in your So in your heart, that all this talk of sticking it to the hedge funds is complete, you know, bull. Um, It's just more interesting. And you have a sense of community and other people your age are doing it. So it's natural. Um, All I can say is that, you know, people should be very careful. And um, think, remember that investing is not an extension of our own cultural identity. It's a means to an end whether it's early retirement, safe retirement, college, a nest egg, a house or whatever. Uh, I, Increasingly, I see people buy, let's say, Tesla stock or, or crypto or GameStop because they think it says something about them as a person. And I mm. get that. But, you know, the man doesn't care whether you're buying GameStop. Nobody's made more money out of the trading frenzy in getting those meme stocks. Then Wall Street and the trading firms on Wall Street—they love this. Yes, a few hedge funds got their eyes blackened, but they don't care about other hedge funds. They're rivals. They love ordinary investors trading. I, I worry about how this is going to end because it feels euphoric and frothy at the moment.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting pointing out that it 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 appears on the outside that you're you know sticking it to the man or whatever it might be, but. We know if we know enough about, about finance or Wall Street, people are still making a lot of money. Even if it appears through media or social media that maybe that's not happening, it's still happening. And. And I love you pointing out about just being being careful because you know I've done 800 episodes of the show and we we talk a lot about how money isn't always sexy. It's it's yeah. wealth is achieved in in the small things, in the small steps, and the things that maybe seem too foundational. But it's those foundations that really get you to that point.
1: Exactly. No, it's. Look, I mean, it's natural in that, for example, you know, there's a lot of talk on Wall Street about uh, ESD, environmental governance and social issues, that you avoid investing in oil companies. And I get that kind of a cultural thing that you don't want to buy stocks in companies that might ruin the world or, or so on, or tobacco companies or whatever it'll be. But I think treating investing in money as a game or 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 some sort of... um wraps up in your identity is who you are as a person. I think is where I can see things getting out of hand -hand. Nobody minds. Like I, I I bet money occasionally on, on soccer results. I, I follow soccer. My favorite soccer club is Liverpool. It's fun. It's fine. And there's no meaningful difference between me wasting some of my money doing that than somebody doing it on GameStop really. But I think the trading apps, And the the sense that you can get rich quick is such an intoxicating drug. It gets way more addictive than even gambling. So, you know, there've been some high profile tragedies around this. And, you know, I've seen the studies. I mean, there was a great study on day traders from Brazil the other day that, you know, people might dismiss because, oh, it's just Brazil. But it was a really comprehensive study on how well individual traders did over a long period of time in Brazil. And 97% of them lost all their money, 97%. Wow. I think two and a half percent made as much money as they'd make working minimum wage in McDonald's. And then half a percent made more money, as much money or more than they would as a bank teller. So it's just, in the long run, this is, even for professionals, and there's a famous article in the book about this, this is the loser's game. By trading, mm-hmm. certainly trading by actively, you're playing the loser's game. Losers game is a reference to tennis, that you know, the person that generally wins a tennis match is not the person that does the most brilliant shots, it's the one that screws up the least. And yes. investing is kind of the same thing. You want to minimize your mistakes. And then just let the magic of compounding and generally speaking financial markets do kind of head upwards in the long run and just make that work for you rather than you work for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I put an exclamation on that point. I do have to just sidestep just for a second. So on my um, – I don't know if it's it's not a, uh, a to-do list, but I have to come to a soccer game <laughs> in Europe. I have recently got into all of the Netflix documentaries about soccer. Obviously, it's not that popular here in the U.S., but I mean, just to go in the stands of a soccer game, I have to imagine, is like – one of the craziest experiences.
1: It is. I mean, even a mediocre game will have a lot of atmosphere, at least at some of the big clubs. But if you're lucky to get a, really a classic match, it's electrifying and it does stay with you for a while. So uh, you know, if you watched the Sunderland documentary on Netflix, was one of them. Sunderland is yes. a good live audience, I suspect, um, and you know. The only problem is slightly out of the off the beaten track. If you're flying to London, it's pretty far north and cold.
0: (laughs) Sounds like that, but that sounds like the ingredients to a great soccer match.
1: (laughs) Yes, you want pies, hot pies, hot coffee, and uh, very intense football, and that's generally what the north of England offers in abundance.
0: Tell me a little bit about your your career being a journalist, specifically on passive investing. Like how did you decide this is my sweet spot?
1: Well, so I, I ended up in financial journalism purely by chance. You know, like many young aspiring journalists, uh, I dreamt of being a war correspondent. I didn't actually get to be a war play actor, uh, play actor, war correspondent for half a year in Benghazi and, and Bahrain during the Arab Spring. But my first job out of university was in financial journalism because that's where the jobs were cynically. And I was always quite curious and I wanted to learn a bit more. And it was like, you know, the Cat Stevens song, the, the first cut is the deepest. It was just fascinating. Here I was, like a young, sort of early 20 year old who knew absolutely nothing. And people were paying me to learn stuff and talk to all these interesting <laughs> people who were, for the most part, but not always, pretty patient about explaining stuff to you. My first interview was doing something like Islamic reinsurance, which is as wildly kind of complex and bizarre as it sounds. Uh, but I just, I loved it. So I, I liked figuring stuff out. So financial journalism, despite my sort of dalliance with war correspondent thing, uh, was where I've sort of ended up staying. And the reason why I cover passive investing is because a lot of journalism, certainly in politics, I'm sure you've seen that, but also even financial journalism, can be what I maybe unkindly call celebrity journalism like every industry has its celebrities and you know what they say makes news and to a certain extent they've o- earned that status but there can be almost over coverage of certain areas and for me you know whether it's hedge funds or private equity or big banks and jamie diamond and people like that you know they get really well covered there's lots of people that cover them all the time but quite often, the most interesting and certainly the most important stories are the ones that aren't well told because they seem kind of boring. So if you think of the financial crisis, you know, a lot of people kind of saw parts of the puzzle and saw bits and bobs, but they either didn't put it together or you know, they were too focused on the celebrities, as it were, not the overall shift in the fabric of the financial system that was happening. So I always kind of try to focus on that. Like, I do write about people. People are fascinating. My book is, you know, it's a narrative story about people, the people that did this. But I think fundamentally, I kind of want to use people as a way to explain people the more important, bigger shifts. And the rise of index funds is a classic one that's kind of on the face boring. Like like I said, nobody goes into the party and brags that they've invested in the Vanguard 500 fund. Uh, but it's one of the most consequential shifts in the entire financial system of the past few decades. And it has so many ripple effects. So I just I I see finance a bit like a jungle, like an ecosystem, but I always say it's a jungle. And you the new animals come and go, dinosaurs go extinct, mammals rise up again, and so on. And the index fund is a kind of a tiny little mammal that, you know, was stomped on for a long time and is now this massive huge beast that is now doing the stomping and i think you know i'm a i'm glad it's doing the stomping because i think it's a pretty cool animal and it's made the jungle a better jungle but i still think people need to understand the impact it's having and also frankly the impact it's going to have increasingly over the next 10 years because it keeps growing so quickly right when i started writing the book it was 14 trillion by the time i was done with the research it was 15 trillion (laughs) By the time I was publishing the book, it was 16 trillion. By the time I'm talking to you now, it's 17 trillion. And even that doesn't include all the pension plans and sovereign wealth funds in the Gulf that do this in house. They don't have like an index fund. They just say, hey, we can do this ourselves in house. If you add in all that, we're talking at least 25, 26 trillion dollars, like a quarter of the entire financial markets in the entire world, all of it. As a quarter around is is just purely passive following some sort of index and a change that big is so consequential i just kind of i felt it warranted a book and also warrants one of the reason why i spend a lot of time in it but i don't just write about that i i do have other interests i feel i need to stress before i say too one-dimensional
0: Yes, I can imagine that uh, one-dimensional. Probably, probably you'd wake up one day saying, "Like, I, I really don't want to talk about passive investing today." <laughs> no, the good
1: thing is with finance, it throws up all sorts of fantastic, really fascinating little puzzles for me to figure out all the time, and that's been that's always fun. So passive has been one of the, the bigger puzzles, uh, and one I sort of spend a decent amount of my time on. But you know, it's just how finance is evolving with technology, right? We almost don't see it as much because we still go to our bank and cash our checks in the US and so on. But, you know, the finance industry is going to just look radically different in 10, 20 years time.
0: So what do you think to sort of summarize here obviously everyone listening to this podcast they're reading books they're hopefully picking up your book trillions they're trying to do the best with their money what kind of takeaway or wisdom can you share that we could we could walk away after after this conversation uh maybe being better prepared for that future that's coming
1: well be aware of anybody selling you something and especially if they sell you something that Seems too good to be true. I mean, it's kind of the kind of the advice our parents used to give us all the time. But it's just, I think it's worth hammering home that you know if somebody's selling you something, whether it's a, an investment fund or a cryptocurrency or something, ask them why are they selling this? What do they have to gain? So, yeah, you know, use advisors that charge flat fees rather than commissions for how many products they manage to push on you, and just be disciplined. Don't panic when the market drops fifty, sixty percent. I mean, the crazy thing is the stock market especially tends to, you know, have pretty good bounce, bounce back ability, they call it in football, in English football and soccer. And, you know, if you'd asked us in mean, March 9, March 2020, when the world was reeling from COVID, stock markets were, you know, bombed out. And I was genuinely worried we were going to face a financial crisis even greater than what we had in 08 on top of an economic and health crisis. You know, I would have said, oh. God, this is terrible. This is awful. We're all going to do, we're all doomed. The stock market's a complete disaster zone for ages. Well, lo and behold, the US stock market has more than doubled since that low in March. So, if you panicked and pulled your money out, you would have done badly. So, that's why I would say investing is one of the rare walks of life, perhaps the only one where it pays to be lazy. But a better word is probably disciplined. Like, being lazy by choosing just a few funds, cheap ones, broad ones, and then sticking to that course. There's a reason why Jack Bogle, the, who founded Vanguard and built it in this like $8 trillion investment empire, entitled his final book, his autobiography, Stay the Course. I think that's good advice for most people.
0: Robin, this has been so insightful, such a great conversation. I'd love for you to tell every li- everyone listening where they can go to find you and pick up a copy of Trillions.
1: Well, uh, it's definitely sold on all sorts of good and bad online retail sales, uh, sites like Amazon and so on, but Barnes & Noble, uh, most good and hopefully some of the bad bookshops and retail outlets will have a copy, I hope and if not then i'm way too active on twitter uh it's the, the 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 crack cocaine of journalism is is social media of course so you know hit me up there and if you haven't been able to get a copy then i'll either get penguin to send you one directly or i'll I'll sort it out find out how you can get one
0: i sat down and literally read robin's book trillions without taking a break all in a Sunday just ripped through it i I'm a huge documentary lover, and reading this book was like watching a great documentary. It's just amazing to hear about the invention of something like the indexed fund and how that has really revolutionized the investing world for you and me. I just it's almost like why didn't somebody think of this sooner? and then, the the audacity, I think, to come up with this idea and say, we're going to do this and we're going to change everything. It just blows my mind. I could obviously go on and on about it, but I'll leave you at this. You need to read this book. So as always, if you love this episode, share it with a friend or family member, somebody who you think would be a little bit interested in learning about index funds as well. As always, you can head to the show notes for all the links to our episode guests as well as our amazing episode sponsors that make this podcast possible. I'll see you right back here in a few days for a brand new
2: episode. Hey, you. Yes, you. Before you go, we want to say thanks for listening to this episode of Millennial Money. For all the links, tags, and ads you've heard on today's episode, check out the show notes or go to mmoneypodcast.com, where you'll find more episodes to share with your friends. While you're at it, leave us a review. And make sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss out on all the money tips and tricks that will take you from a millennial regular to a millennial money expert. See you back here in a few days with a fresh new episode.